This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Historical Contingencies and Biblical Predictions The last half of our century has witnessed an explosion of interest in what biblical prophecies say about our future. Record sales of Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth and John Walvoord's Armageddon oil and the Middle East crisis indicate that many English-speaking evangelicals read the Bible to find out what will happen in the future and how current events fit within that chronological framework. I think that's the understatement of the paper. Recent events have only encouraged enthusiasm for this hermeneutic. Moral decay in Western culture has raised fears of cataclysmic divine retribution. Political troubles in various parts of the world have been interpreted as the initial stages of history's grand finale. As a result, evangelicals have developed nothing less than a monomania in the interpretation of biblical prophecy. More than anything else, they try to discover God's plan for the future and what role events today play in that divine program. Our study today will challenge this widespread hermeneutical orientation by exploring the role of historical contingencies intervening between Old Testament predictions and their fulfillments. As we will see, events taking place after predictions often directed the course of history in ways not anticipated by prophetic announcements. Sometimes future events conformed to a, prophetic, a prophet's words, sometimes they did not. For this reason, neither prophets nor their listeners knew precisely what eventualities to expect. If this proposal is correct, it indicates that the emphasis of many contemporary interpreters is misplaced and that we must find other hermeneutical interests in biblical prophecy. The first section. Historical Contingencies and Theological Considerations. Before testing this proposal by the prophetic materials themselves, it will help to set a theological framework around our discussion. This is going to take care of everybody's anxiety if you've understood anything I said up to this point. <laughs> many, <laughs> many evangelicals, especially those in the Reformed tradition, may find it difficult to imagine prophets of Yahweh predicting events that do not occur. After all, the prophets were privy to the heavenly court. They received their messages from the transcendent creator. May we even entertain the possibility that subsequent events significantly affected the fulfillments of their predictions? Does this notion not contradict the immutability of the divine decrees? By and large, critical interpreters simply dismiss these theological concerns as irrelevant. Traditional critical scholars tend to deny the possibility of prescience through divine revelation. A prophecy that gives the impression of foreknowledge is actually vaticidium ex eventum, that is, prophecy out of the events, telling it after it happened. God may know the future, but humans certainly cannot. In recent decades, the repudiation of divine transcendence in process theology has challenged traditional theological concerns from another direction. For example, Carroll urges that talk about God knowing the future is unnecessary, as process theology makes so clear. The hermeneutical gymnastics required to give any coherence to the notion of God knowing and revealing the future in the, reform, in the form of predictions to the prophets does no religious community any credit. 
when divinity is thought to be in process with the universe, not even God knows the future. Despite these widespread tendencies, interpreters of the prophets who stand in continuity with historic expressions of the Reformed tradition must strongly affirm the immutability of God's character and eternal decrees. The immutability of divine decrees is particularly important for our study, and Calvinism is remarkably uniform in this matter. Calvin himself, for instance, spoke in no uncertain terms about God's decrees. He said, God so attends to the regulation of individual events, and they all so proceed from his set plan that nothing takes place by chance. In Calvin's view, God had a fixed plan for the universe. This plan included every event in history in such detail that nothing takes place by happenstance. Calvinistic scholastics in the 17th century often echoed Calvin's language. As the Westminster Confession of Faith put it, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. pass rather. Reformed theologians in America two centuries later also used similar language. Charles Hodge, for instance, insisted that God is immutable in his plans and purposes, infinite in wisdom. There can be no error in their conception, infinite in power. There can be no failure in their accomplishment. As this sampling suggests, the Reformed tradition has summarized the teaching of Scripture on this subject with one voice. From eternity past, God's immutable decrees fixed every detail of history. Nothing can alter these decrees nor any part of the history they determined. In line with these formulations, we must approach prophetic predictions with the full assurance that historical contingencies have never interrupted the immutable decrees of God. No uncertainties ever lay before him. No power can thwart the slightest part of his plan. Yahweh spoke through his prophets with full knowledge and control of what was going to happen in the near and distant future. Any outlook that denies this theological conviction is less than adequate. Up to this point, we have mentioned only one side of the theological framework that surrounds the subject of prophecy and intervening historical contingencies. To understand these matters more fully, we must also give attention to the providence of God, that is, his eminent historical interactions with creation. The Reformed tradition has emphasized the transcendence of God, including his eternal decrees. This theological accent has many benefits, but it also has li a liability. An overemphasis on divine transcendence has at times obscured the reality and complexity of divine providence. We need only to review historical expressions of divine providence in the Reformed tradition to correct this problem. Calvin, for instance, not only spoke of God's immutable plan, he also acknowledged God's real involvement with history. To be sure, he often described biblical accounts of God contemplating, questioning, repenting, and the like as anthropomorphisms, yet Calvin also insisted that God is actually engaged in historical processes. As he put it, the omnipotent God is watchful, effective, active, engaged in ceaseless activity. Beyond this, Calvin viewed divine providence as a complex reality. Providence is, quote, the determinative principle of all things. But sometimes God works through an intermediary sometime without not simply make an eternal plan that fixed all events. He also sees that his plan is carried out by working through, without, and contrary to created means. Calvin balanced his affirmation of the immutability of God's decrees with an acknowledgment of God's complex involvement in the progression of history. 
The confession of faith also displays a deep appreciation of divine providence. In the fifth chapter, the fifth chapter speaks to the issue at hand. There we read, although in relation to the decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet in the same providence, he, or he often orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. This passage acknowledges that all events are fixed by eternal decrees, but secondary causes play a vital role in the providential outworking of those decrees. How do secondary causes interact? The confession affirms that they work, to get, they work together either necessarily, freely, or contingently. It is important for our purposes to point out that contingencies are acknowledged as historical realities in the confession of faith. The Westminster Assembly did not view the universe as a gigantic machine in which each event mechanically necessitated the next. On the contrary, in the providence of God, events take place freely and contingently as well. In this sense, belief in God's immutability to a human choice. Under the sovereign control of God, the choices people make determine the directions history will take. If we make one choice, certain results will occur. If we choose another course, other events will follow. To be sure, God is free to work without, above, and against second causes at his pleasure, but in his ordinary providence, he maketh use of means. That is to say, human choice is one of the ordinary ways in which God works out his immutable decrees. In accordance with his all-encompassing fixed plan, God often waits to see what his human subjects will do and then directs the future on the basis of what they decide. Divine providence provides a perspective that complements divine immutability. Old Testament prophets revealed the word of the unchangeable Yahweh, but prophets spoke for God in space and time, not before the foundations of the world. By definition, therefore, they did not utter immutable decrees, but providential declarations. For this reason, we should not be surprised to find that intervening historical contingencies, especially human reactions, has significant effects on the ways predictions were realized. In fact, we will see that Yahweh often spoke through his prophets, watched the reactions of people, and then determined how to carry through with his prophetic declarations. Second part, historical contingencies and predictions. Predictions. Most interpreters have re recognized that intervening historical contingencies play some role in the prediction fulfillment dynamic of Old Testament prophecy, yet opinions vary widely on how this function should be construed. One end of the spectrum tends to restrict the significance of contingencies to a small class of predictions. The other end of the spectrum gives a more central role to human choice and divine freedom. One source of confusion in the discussions of these matters has been a failure to distinguish among different kinds of prophetic predictions. By and large, analyses have focused on the content of prophecies as determinative of the role of historical contingencies. We will try to bring some clarity to the discussion by distinguishing several formal features of Old Testament predictions. We will speak of three kinds of predictions. One, predictions qualified by conditions, two, predictions qualified by assurances, and three, predictions without qualifications. How did historical contingencies relate to each type of prediction? First, a survey of Old Testament prophecies under, uncovers a number of passages in which prophets offered predictions qualified by conditions. 
they explicitly made fulfillments dependent on the response of those who listened. This qualification was communicated in many ways, but we will limit ourselves to a sampling of passages with the surface grammar of conditional sentences. Some conditional prophecies were bipolar. They declared two directions listeners may have taken, one leading to curse and the other leading to blessing. For instance, Isaiah 1, 19 through 20 reads, If you are ready and obey, you will eat the best produce of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord, or Yahweh, has spoken. I should tell you all these translations are my translations, which means I can make them say what I want them to say. <laughs> Isaiah, not, there's nothing funny going on. Um, Isaiah made two options explicit. Obedience would lead to eating the best of the promised land. Disobedience would lead to being devoured by an enemy's sword, thus bipolar. In a similar fashion, Jeremiah approached Zedekiah with two choices for the house of David. For if you thoroughly carry out these commands, then Davidic kings who sit on the throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, each one accompanied by his officials and his army. But if you do not obey these commands, declares Yahweh, I swear by myself that this palace will fall into ruin. The future of Judah's nobility depended on human actions. Great victory and blessings were in store for obedient kings, but rebellious kings would bring ruin to the palace. The prophetic prediction was explicitly qualified in both ways. These passages introduce an important consideration. When prophets spoke about things to come, they did not necessarily refer to what the future would be. At times, they proclaimed only what might be. Prophets were attempting to create certain responses in the community by making their predictions explicitly conditional. They spoke of potential, not necessary, future events. Thus, their predictions warned of judgment and offered blessings in order to motivate listeners to participate in determining their own future. As we will see, this feature of Old Testament prophecy is central to understanding the prediction fulfillment dynamic. Conditional prophecies also appear as unipolar. In these cases, the prophets spoke explicitly of one set of choices and results and only implied other possibilities. Sometimes they focused on a negative future. For instance, Isaiah warned Ahaz, if you are not faithful, then you will not stand at all, Isaiah 7, 9. Isaiah told Ahaz that he faced doom if he did not respond with faith in Yahweh. He did not mention any other options in, this, in the oracle. Other times, prophets pointed to a positive future. In his famous temple sermon, Jeremiah announced in Jeremiah 7, if you dramatically improve your ways and your actions and actually show justice to each other, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. The prophet told the people of Judah that their continuance in the land of promise was dependent on their obedience. He did not spell out other contingencies. Unipolar conditional predictions point to another important feature of Old Testament prophecy. Prophets did not always speak explicitly of all possible conditions related to their predictions. The context of the unipolar word to Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 9 uh, implied that the king would be blessed if he relied on Yahweh, verses 3 through 9. Jeremiah's words concerning the temple in, I, in Jeremiah 7 warned of exile for disobedience in verses 8 through 15. Yet, explicit conditions mentioned in the oracles themselves only focused on one side of each situation. 
We should not be surprised, therefore, to find that in other circumstances, Old Testament prophets did not state all conditions applying to their predictions. In fact, we will see that considering unexpressed conditions is vital to a proper interpretation of prophecy. We now turn to the other end of the spectrum, where prophets offered predictions qualified by assurances, not conditions now, but assurances, guarantees of different sorts accompanied prophetic oracles. We will mention three. First, on three occasions in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet opposed those who hoped for Jerusalem's deliverance from Babylonian dominion by revealing that Yahweh forbade intercession for the city. For instance, God declared that the exile was coming for the residents of Jerusalem, Jeremiah 7.15, but he quickly added, Do not pray on behalf of this people, nor lift up any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you, Jeremiah 7.16. In Jeremiah 11.11a, Yahweh announced an inescapable doom of judgments for Jerusalem. To confirm this prediction, the oracle continued, And they may cry to me, but I will not listen to them, verse 11b. To make matters even more certain, God instructed Jeremiah once again, not even you should pray for this people, Jeremiah 11:14. Similarly, Yahweh announced the sentence of exile in Jeremiah 14:10 and turned to the prophet for a third time, do not pray for any good thing for this people, 14:11. In addition, Yahweh insisted he would not pay attention to their fasting nor their burnt and grain offerings. He would undoubtedly destroy them, verse 12. Later in the same context, and I love this passage, Yahweh revealed his utter determination to judge by saying that he would not relent, quote, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, Jeremiah 15, 1. A second type of assurance amounts to denials that Yahweh's intentions will be reversed. For the most part, these passages assert that Yahweh will not turn back, using the Hebrew word shuv, or repent, nacham. For example, the well-known oracles of judgment in the opening chapters of Amos repeat the same formula at the beginning of each proclamation. For three sins, for whatever country he's speaking of at the time, even for four, I will not turn back. The words, I will not turn back, using the root shuv, expressed Yahweh's determination to carry through with the sentences of each oracle. Turn back appears frequently in the Old Testament with God as subject to denote a change in divine disposition toward a course of action. To the delight of his Israelites' audience, Amos announced that Yahweh was not simply threatening the foreign nations, yet Amos also used the same expression to make it plain that God would not reverse himself regarding their judgment either. Amos 2, 4, and 6. Similar assurances occur in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah confirms the promise of Yahweh's victory over all nations as, quote, a word that will not be revoked. Isaiah 45, 23. Jeremiah assured his listeners that Jerusalem's destruction was sure by adding, Yahweh's anger will not turn back. Jeremiah 23, 20. Jeremiah 4, 28. Yahweh offers an additional assurance. I will not relent and I will not turn back from it. Along these same lines, Ezekiel reported Yahweh's word and I will not relent to assure of Jerusalem's coming devastation. Ezekiel 24, 14. A third type of confirmation appears when Yahweh takes solemn oaths. Divine oaths appear in the prophets in the third and first person. Frequently, the typical verbal expression, nashav, appears. Amos declared that the northern kingdom's destruction was confirmed by oath. Amos 4, 2, 6, 8, 8, 7. 
Isaiah and Jeremiah announced that Jeremiah, that Yahweh rather, had sworn to destroy Israel's enemies. Jeremiah insisted that the majority of Jews exiled to Egypt would die there. Twice, Isaiah confirmed Israel's restoration by divine oath. Divine oaths also appear in the form of as Yahweh lives or as I live. Ezekiel confirmed Jeremiah's destruction with this formula on several occasions. The destruction of other nations was also assured by such a divine oath. Judgments against certain individuals took this form in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Finally, Isaiah and Ezekiel confirmed the restoration of Jerusalem by reporting Yahweh's oath. So we see then that predictions qualified by assurances reveal two important features of Old Testament prophecy. On the one hand, these passages make it plain that some predicted events were inevitable. With reference to these declarations, Yahweh would not listen to prayers, he would not turn back, relent, nor violate his oaths. Nevertheless, we must remember that these kinds of predictions are few in number. I have given you all of them and usually very specific in their descriptions of the future. Or pardon me, not very specific in their descriptions of the future. They assure that some events will take place, but they do not guarantee how, to what extent, when, nor a host of other details. As we will see, these details are subject to historical contingency. On the other hand, this class of prophecies, those assured by... <coughs> Um, those given assurances also indicate that not all predictions shared this heightened certainty. Yahweh forbade prayers in response to some oracles precisely because prayer usually had the potential of affecting outcomes. Jeremiah 26:19, Jonah 3:10, Amos 7:1 through 9 are examples of where prayers actually affect the outcomes of predictions. Similarly, Yahweh declared that he would not turn back nor relent from some courses of action because he normally left those options open. Joel 2.14, Amos 7.3.6, Jonah 3.9, where it explicitly says that Yahweh turned back and relented. Finally, at times, Yahweh took an oath to add weight to a prediction precisely because not all predictions had this solemn status. As we have seen, a number of predictions contain explicit conditions and assurances. Now, we will give attention to a third category of predictions, those without qualifications. These materials contain neither express conditions nor assurances. From the outset, we may say without hesitation that intervening historical contingencies had some bearing on this class of predictions. This is the important stuff, so listen now. Wake up for just two or three minutes. The Old Testament abounds with examples of unqualified predictions of events that did not take place. For instance, Jonah announced, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, Jonah 3.4, but God spared the city, 3.10. Shemaiah told Rehoboam, you have abandoned me, so I now abandon you to Shishak, 2 Chronicles 12.5, but the attack was mollified, chapter 12, 7 through 8. Huldah declared to Josiah, I am bringing disaster on this place and its inhabitants, 2 Kings 22:16. but the punishment for Jerusalem was later postponed. Micah said to Hezekiah, quote, Zion will be plowed like a field by Sennacherib, Micah 3:12. but the invasion fell short of conquering the city. In each of these examples, the predicted events or the predicted future did not take place. 
What caused these turns of events? Each text explicitly cites human responses as the grounds for the deviations. The people of Nineveh, the leaders of Judah, Josiah, and Hezekiah repented or prayed upon hearing the prophetic word. These passages indicate that the fulfillment of at least some unqualified predictions were subject to the contingency of human response. Conditions did not have to be stated explicitly to be operative. As Calvin put it, even though the prophets make a simple affirmation, it is to be understood from the outcome that these nonetheless contain a tacit condition. These observations raise an important question. How should we relate the presence of tacit conditions to the well-known mosaic criterion of false prophets in Deuteronomy 18:22? There we read, if a prophet proclaims in the name of if what a prophet proclaims in the name of Yahweh does not occur or come about, that is a message Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. At first glance, this passage appears to present a straightforward test. Failed predictions mark false prophets. As parsimonious as this interpretation may be, it does not account for the many predictions from canonical and thus true prophets that were not realized. Interpreters have taken different approaches to this difficulty. Many critical scholars treat Deuteronomy 18.22 as, as uniquely deuteronomistic and contradicted by other biblical traditions. Evangelicals usually argue that Moses' test should be taken as a general rule to which there are a few exceptions. An alternative outlook would be to assume that Moses and his audience realized that unqualified predictions had implied conditions. If this dynamic was well known, then he did not have to repeat it explicitly when he offered his criterion in Deuteronomy 18.22. In this view, Moses' test instructed Israel to expect a prediction from a true prophet to come about unless significant intervening contingencies interrupted. This understanding of the Mosaic criterion may explain why so many passages highlight the historical contingencies that interrupted many fulfillments. Old Testament writers accounted for the Mosaic test of false prophets by pointing out why the predictions of true prophets sometimes did not come true. For example, the writer of Jonah explains how the king of Nineveh ordered fasting and mourning, quote, by every person and by every beast, herd, and flock, Jonah 3, 7. Even the beast and the herds and the flock put on sackcloth and ashes. The chronicler used one of his most poignant theological terms, kana, to be humble, uh, when he said that Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah humbled themselves in chapter 12, 6 of 2 Chronicles. The writer of Kings described Josiah's ritual tearing of his robe. The specificity of these passages suggests that so long as Israelites could point to significant intervening contingencies, they had no trouble accepting interrupted predictions as originating with Yahweh. While it seems indisputable that historical contingencies affected unqualified predictions, evangelicals have differed over the breadth of their influence. Did tacit conditions apply only to a small class of unqualified predictions, or did conditions attach to all of these prophecies? In an, an answer to this question appears <clears throat> in, the eight, in the 18th chapter of Jeremiah, the prophet's experience at the potter's house. This passage stood against the backdrop of false views concerning the inviolability of Jerusalem. Many Jerusalemites opposed Jeremiah because they believed divine protection for Jerusalem was entirely unconditional. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12 amounted to a rebuttal of this false security. 
It stated that all unqualified predictions, even those concerning Jerusalem, operated with implied conditions. This chapter opens, Jeremiah 18, with the prophet visiting a potter's house and experiencing a symbolic event. A potter worked with ruined clay, and he reshaped it into another form. Immediately, Yahweh revealed the significance of this event to the prophet. The house of Israel is like clay in the hands of Yahweh the potter. He may do with her as he pleases. Yahweh then elaborated further on the analogy in the following verses. If at some time I say regarding any nation or kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, or destroy, and if that nation about which I spoke repents of its evil, then I may relent from the evil I plan to do to it. And if at some other time I say regarding any nation or kingdom that I will build it up and plant it, and if it does evil in my eyes, not listening to my voice, then I may relent from the good which I said I would do for it. Several elements in this passage point to its categorical nature. First, each sentence begins with an emphatically general temporal references. The expressions at some time and at some other time emphasize that Yahweh's words apply to every situation. No particular circumstances limit the prodigies. Kingdom also points to the categorical nature of the policy. Yahweh's responsiveness applies to all nations. Third, these verses describe two major types of prophetic prediction, judgment and salvation. In terms of form-critical analysis, all prophecies, um, all prophetic oracles, gravitations of all predictions underscores the categorical nature of the dynamic described here. The universal perspective of Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12, strongly suggests that all unqualified predictions were subject to implicit conditions. Sincere repentance had the potential of affecting every unqualified prophecy of judgment. Flagrant disobedience had the potential of negating every unqualified prophecy of prosperity. A survey of scripture reveals that the descriptions of God's reactions in Jeremiah 18 are only representative. Yahweh reacted to human responses in many different ways. At various times, he completely reversed, postponed, mollified, and went ahead and carried through with predictions. Yahweh exercised great latitude because his responses were situation-specific, appropriate for the particularities of each event. Nevertheless, a basic pattern was always at work. The realization of all unqualified predictions was subject to modification as Yahweh reacted to his people's responses. Many evangelical interpreters have resisted adopting this categorical outlook. By and large, they limit conditionality to predictions that exhibit two features in their content. Most evangelicals say, first, that the prophecy must have an imminent fulfillment. That is to say, it must refer to the near future, as Burkhoff put it, or as Kaiser said, to an event which is fairly proximate in time and space. Second, the prediction must depend on, now again to use Kaiser, some act of obedience or repentance on the part of the prophet's contemporaries, or again Burkhoff, on the free actions of the prophet's contemporaries. Advocates of limiting conditionality in these ways, both temporally and in terms of the possibility of repentance, have offered little support for their view. Um, they tend simply to point to the contents of prophecies they already believe are inviolable, such as the promise of Messiah, final judgment, or in some cases, to modern Israel's right to the land of Canaan. Predictions regarding these and other related theological concerns are deemed unconditional because the content is already assumed to be unconditional.
the lack of argumentation makes it difficult to respond to these views, we may make only a few comments. First, it begs the question to argue that certain prophecies are unconditional because they speak of matters that are unconditionally fixed. Yes? Enormous theological biases guide such evaluations based on a prediction's content. Second, no such limitations appear in Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. As we have seen, the language of the passage is so categorical that it would seem necessary for an absolutely unconditional prophecy to state explicitly that it is an exception to the rule. And we have seen some of those here this morning. Jeremiah 18 sets no limitation of particular time frame or subject matter. In fact, the only qualification is that historical contingencies must intervene between the prediction and its fulfillment. To sum up this section, we have seen that intervening historical contingencies had a bearing on all three major types of prophetic predictions. Some predictions explicitly told the original listeners that their actions would affect outcomes. A few passages assured that a prediction would be realized, but precisely how that outcome would look still remains subject to contingencies. Beyond this, unqualified predictions, the bulk of the prophetic material, always, always operated with tacit conditions. In all cases, significant responses before fulfillments had the prediction of affecting to some, had the potential rather, of affecting to some degree how Yahweh would direct the future. Now we come to the next major section, historical contingencies and expectations. These observations raise a crucial question. If human responses could affect the way Yahweh directed history after a prediction, how did prophets or their listeners have any sure or secure expectations for the future? Were they not cast into a sea of utter uncertainty? The prophets themselves point in a helpful direction. As we will see, they did not believe Yahweh was free to take history in any direction. On the contrary, they looked to past revelation to understand the parameters to which Yahweh had bound himself. To be more specific, the prophets looked to Yahweh's covenants to guide their expectations of what the future held. It has been well established that Old Testament prophets saw themselves operating within the structure of Yahweh's covenants. They were emissaries of God, the great suzerain, mediating covenant sanctions between Yahweh and his people. The prophetic corpus explicitly mentions the covenant with Noah, Moses, and David. No doubt the Mosaic and Davidic covenants appear more frequently than others in the prophet's writings. The laws of Sinai formed the basis of their moral evaluation. The pervasive curses and blessings announced by the prophets correspond to, corresponded to the Mosaic covenant. Even the threat of exile and hope of restoration to the land stemmed from the Mosaic covenant. Moreover, the intense prophetic concern with Jerusalem and its throne shows their dependence on the Davidic covenant. To understand how Yahweh's covenants provided certain expectations for the prophets and their listeners, we need merely to recall that the language and rituals of covenants portray these events as divine oaths. It is well known that the cutting rituals indicated explicitly in several passages, as well as the common expression to cut a covenant, karat berit, uh, depict covenant-making events as rites of swearing. Associated terms such as Allah and Adut suggest similar concepts. As Klein put it, both in the Bible and in extra-biblical documents concerned with covenant arrangements, the swearing of the oath is frequently found in parallelistic explication of the idea of entering into a covenant relationship or as a synonym for it. Divine covenants were not declarations subject to revision. They were divine oaths whose invariance reflected the immutable character of God himself. 
All of this is to say that whenever prophets offered predictions, they did so with the firm conviction that Yahweh would keep his covenants with Israel. It was unthinkable that he would violate the structures of blessings and curses given through these solemn, the solemn oaths. Yahweh, Solomon too, um, Yahweh would never react to historical contingencies in ways that transgressed his covenants. This conviction provided Old Testament prophets and their listeners with a large set of general expectations. General, mind you. Yahweh has sworn himself to accomplish certain things in history. For instance, in Noah's day, Yahweh promised cosmic stability until the end of the world. Isaiah acknowledged the permanence of that expectation in Isaiah 54, 9. God promised Abraham that his descendants would possess the land of Canaan. This conviction remains strong in the prophetic word, even in the face of temporary exile. Yahweh revealed laws to Moses that regulated daily life and the service of the cult. The prophets affirmed these structures. God promised David that his dynasty would be permanent and victorious over all nations. The prophetic word held relentlessly to these promises as well. The list of certainties derived from Old Testament covenants is enormous. The covenantal parameters surrounding Yahweh and his people provided a basis for many expectations, but they did not settle every question. They set limits, but, they, but much latitude existed within these boundaries. Which curses would Yahweh carry out? What blessings would he bestow? When? Prophetic predictions drew attention to these matters. As emissaries of the great suzerain, the prophets announced how Yahweh intended to implement covenant sanctions. Special revelation gave prophets insight into how the principles of the covenant applied to the present and future. As we have seen, however, prophetic predictions based on covenant principles took several formats. How did these variations in prophetic speech bear on the expectations for the future? It will help to explore this matter in terms of the three major types of predictions we have already discussed. First, predictions qualified con by conditions specified some courses of action for Yahweh. These prophecies gave some definition to the manner in which Yahweh planned to implement covenant oaths. For example, Yahweh voluntarily limited his options when he said to Judah, if you are ready and obey, you will eat the best produce of the land, but if you resist and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. These words indicated that Yahweh was no longer overlooking Judah's disobedience. A moment of decision had come. At the same time, however, much latitude remained. It was he, God, who determined if conditions were met. What precisely constituted disobedience and rebellion? Only Yahweh knew. Moreover, only he determined the precise nature of his responses. What kind of produce would they eat upon repentance? How much? What enemy would attack? When would judgment come? How long? The prophecy did not specify. In this sense, conditional predictions narrowed the latitude with which Yahweh might deal with his people, but they did not remove all leeway. Second, a similar assessment holds for predictions qualified by assurances. <coughs> Once again, the manner in which Yahweh might relate to his people was somewhat restricted. When Amos announced for three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back, Amos 2.4, Yahweh committed himself to a course of action against Judah. Moreover, predictions qualified by divine oaths explicitly raised expectations, the expectations for the prophecies to the level of covenantal certainties. For example, Ezekiel's announcement that utter destruction would come to Jerusalem as Yahweh lives, was, sure to come, was as sure to come about as Yahweh's oath to sustain the Davidic dynasty in Psalm 110, verse 4. The language of solemn oaths in prophecies had the effect of equating this, this class of predictions with the inviolable covenants. Nevertheless, even here, latitude remained for Yahweh. When? Yahweh. How long? 
By whom? These more specific questions remain unanswered for the prophets and their audiences. Third, we may speak of expectations related to predictions without qualifications in at least two ways. On the one hand, Moses' criterion for true prophets in Deuteronomy 18.22 assured that unqualified announcements from Yahweh would take place in the absence of significant intervening historical contingencies. If recipients of an oracle of judgment did not repent, they could be confident that the judgment would come. If recipients of an oracle of blessing did not turn away from Yahweh, the blessing would be realized. On the other hand, we must also ask what expectations were appropriate when intervening historical contingencies took place. What could the recipients be confident? Could they be confident of a particular outcome? With regard to oracles of judgment, several passages make it clear that no specific expectations came to those who repented and sought Yahweh's favor. For instance, when Jonah announced that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days, the king of Nineveh called for repentance and fasting, as we've read in chapter 3. Nevertheless, he did not respond with full assurance that Yahweh would relent. Instead, he said this, Who knows? The God may turn back and relent. Jonah 3.9 Joel predicted an army of locusts was about to destroy Judah in chapter 2, 1 through 11. He then called for repentance in verses 12 and 13. But what was his expectation? As Joel put it, who knows, God may turn back and relent, Joel 2.14. Once again, the motivation for repentance was not that a human response obligated Yahweh to relent. No one could be sure if he would turn back or not. A similar situation occurred after Nathan prophesied that Bathsheba's first child would die. David prayed and fasted for the child until the prophecy was realized as stated. Why did the king pray? David explained. Quote, I thought, who knows, Yahweh may be merciful and permit the child to live. The similar, perhaps formulaic, character of these three responses suggests that these theological convictions were normative in Israel. Hopeful ignorance. Hopeful ignorance about the future was not an unusual reaction to prophecies. Neither prophets nor their listeners could know for certain that human response would move Yahweh to relent from a threatened judgment. As the case of David and his son illustrates, repentance and prayer, even genuine repentance and prayer, did not always result in divine favor. Second, Daniel 9 demonstrates that expectations were no higher with unqualified predictions of blessing. The Mosaic Covenant stated plainly, that rebellion in Israel would lead to exile, and that repentance would lead to restoration, Deuteronomy chapter 4. This basic pattern had covenantal certainty. In Jeremiah 25, however, <coughs> the prophet announced more specifically that the restoration of exiled Judah would take place in 70 years. Yet Daniel wrestled with Jeremiah's prophecy some 66 years later. He surveyed his situation and prayed for Yahweh to fulfill Jeremiah's prediction in, Jer in Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 19. Daniel's reaction to Jeremiah's prophecy raises an important question. Why did Daniel pray for the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy? Why did he not simply wait for the 70 years to pass? 
Several interpreters have noted the similarity between Jeremiah's prophecy and an inscription of Esarhaddon. It would appear that 70 years was a standard sentence for rebellion against a god. Lipinski speaks of the designation as a time of penitence designed to appease the wrath of a god. Now, you like that? Pretty fast translation. This symbolism pressed hard against Daniel as he looked at his situation. He realized that the exiles had not responded to their 70-year sentence as they should have. So Daniel fasted in sackcloth and ashes, acknowledging Israel's sin before exile. He also conceded that even the punishment of exile had not brought about repentance. Yet we have not obeyed him, Daniel confessed in verse 14. The prophet cried for mercy because Israel's continuing rebellion called into question how Jeremiah's prophecy would play out. Yet we have not obeyed him, Daniel confessed in verse 14. The prophet cried for mercy because Israel's continuing rebellion called into question how Jeremiah's prophecy would play out. Yahweh responded to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. Gabriel announced that Jeremiah's 70 years had been extended to 70 weeks of years or 70 times 70 years. Yahweh multiplied the time of exile seven times according to Mosaic covenantal structures. In Leviticus 26, Yahweh warned that continuing sin would bring a successive increase of punishments for Israel. Each time the people refused to repent, divine curses would be increased seven times, finally culminating in exile, Leviticus 26, 23 through 45. Daniel 9 extended the principle of Leviticus 26 by and increased the exile itself seven times because the people of Israel in Daniel's day were in rebellion. From this example, we may conclude that the manner in which Yahweh would interact with human responses to unqualified prediction of blessing also remained uncertain. Significant intervening historical contingencies had taken place, so Daniel had no assurance how or whether the prediction of Jeremiah would be realized. He rested assured of the basic covenantal structures, but the specifics of Jeremiah's unqualified prediction remained in question. To sum up this section, and then we'll have the conclusion. In summary, the original recipients of Old Testament predictions could rest assured that Yahweh would fulfill all of his covenant promises, but no particular prophecy was completely free of the potential of influence of intervening historical contingencies. In this sense, those who heard and read the prophets faced a future, but the manner in which Yahweh would react to human responses remained open until the moment he acted. What conclusions should we draw from this brief study? <laughs> Our study of intervening historical contingencies will raise a serious question for most evangelicals. Our interpretations of biblical prophecy have been dominated by a desire to know the future and how events today fit within that future. But our proposal challenges this approach. If all Old Testament predictions were subject to variation, and most could even have been completely reversed, then what good are they? What value do they have if they do not tell us where we stand in relation to a fixed future? As we have seen, with rare exception, Old Testament prophets did not speak of what had to be, but of what might be. 
Even the few predictions that guaranteed fulfillment did not address their timing nor their manner of realization. Therefore, prophetic predictions were not designed to be building blocks of a futuristic scheme into which current events fit in particular ways. To approach biblical prophecies in this manner is to misuse them. Our study suggests that we need a shift in hermeneutical orientation toward biblical prophecy. Rather than involving ourselves in ceaseless debates over this or that eschatological scheme and how current history relates to it, we should approach biblical prophecies in ways that accord more with the role of intervening historical contingencies. At least two principal hermeneutical concerns move to the foreground. These interpretative issues parallel popular approaches to biblical prophecy, but they are different as well. Here are the two principles of hermeneutical concern. In the first place, prophetic predictions should still cause us to deepen our interest in the future, but with a different emphasis. Instead of looking at biblical predictions as statements of what has to be, we must view them as announcements of what might be coming. As we have seen, with rare exception, Old Testament prophets did not speak of a fixed but potential future. Nevertheless, the first audiences of biblical predictions still turned their thoughts toward the future. The king of Nineveh feared what Yahweh threatened to do to his city when he heard Jonah's message. Rehoboam and the officials of Judah gave attention to the possibility of defeat when Shemaiah predicted Shishak's victory, 2 Chronicles 12. Similarly, Daniel looked forward to the restoration of Israel because of Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy. These recipients of predictions did not ignore Yahweh's word because it was subject to tacit conditions. Ignorance of precisely how or if these predictions would play out did not cast aside interest in the future. On the contrary, hearing a threat of judgment or an offering of blessing was enough to spark their interest in what Yahweh intended to do. This interest in the potential future is understandable when we remember that prophetic predictions conveyed Israel's greatest fears and hopes. On the one hand, Yahweh often threatened to do horrible things in the world. When the prophets announced death, destruction, and exile for the people of God, faithful Israelites could hardly turn a deaf ear. Unlike our day, when secular minds scoff at the possibility of divinity intruding into history in violent anger, ancient Israelites believed such intrusions were real possibilities. For this reason, the dreadful thought of encountering the anger of Yahweh was compelling to them. On the other hand, prophetic announcements of Yahweh's blessing touched on the highest ideals and the greatest desires of faithful Israelites. The prophets announced the prospects of forgiveness, safety from enemies, and prosperity beyond imagination. Unlike our day, when hope for the human race has all but vanished, these hopes held center stage in Israel's faith. When the prophets told of the ways Yahweh offered to bring blessings to his people, interest in the future grew. In much the same way, contemporary readers must not allow the role of intervening historical contingencies to dissuade them from contemplating their future. When careful study determines that a biblical prediction has implications for our potential future, we should consider what might be in store for us. The dread of judgment and the exhilaration of blessings should overwhelm us as we encounter biblical predictions of our future. Developing an intense interest in the future is one of the chief hermeneutical interests we should have toward biblical prophecy. But now the punch. In the second place, 
our study of intervening historical contingency suggests that we should also deepen our concern with the implications of biblical predictions for our lives today. Unlike popular approaches, however, we should not speculate as to how current events fit within to some fixed future. To begin with, the future is certain only to God. Beyond this, our assessment of contemporary events are too inadequate to complete such a project. Instead of looking for how actions today fit within a fixed future, we should explore how actions today affect the future. In a word, we should be less concerned with foreknowledge of the future and more concerned with the formation of the future. Biblical examples we have already mentioned illustrate this hermeneutical interest. The king of Nineveh was not content with having some idea of what might happen to his city. He also applied the prediction to that very day by trying to direct the course of the future away from the threat of judgment. Rehoboam and his officials also sought Yahweh's favor in order to avert the threatened defeat. In much the same way, Daniel tried his best to ensure that Jeremiah's prediction of restoration would take place. In these and other examples, the recipients of predictions knew that historical contingencies could affect the realization of the prophetic word. So they responded with attempts to thwart judgment and secure blessing. Appropriate repentance, prayer, and a redirection of lifestyle became their chief hermeneutical concern. In much the same way, our focus on current events in the light of biblical prophecy should entail our efforts to form the future, not know the future. The fatalism, of which is ironic that Arminians love the fatalism of biblical prophecy, the fatalism of popular approaches could be replaced, or should rather be replaced, by piety and activism intent on avoiding judgment and securing blessing. If we believe that human responses to biblical predictions affect the ways in which the future unfolds, we should make certain that our responses direct the future toward divine blessing, turning away from sin, offering prayers, and working for the kingdom must become our chief hermeneutical concern. Our study of biblical prophecy opens the way for exploring a number of interesting passages. Perhaps, perhaps. It provides a framework for understanding why Jesus told the apostles, some standing here will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God come with power, Mark 9.1. Did intervening historical contingencies delay the return of Christ? Maybe Peter was operating with a similar concept when he admitted that the apparent delay of Christ's return was due to the fact that God is, as you know the famous verse, patient with you, not willing that any not wanting any to perish, but to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Does this view explain why he exhorted his readers in the next verses, you should be holy and godly, looking forward to the day of God and speeding its coming? Perhaps John had this outlook as he heard Jesus announce, yes, I am coming soon, Revelation 20, 20. Was this the reason he responded, amen, come, Lord Jesus? If the proposal of this study is correct, we are not involved in an irrelevant academic debate. If I am correct, 
the way we handle biblical predictions will greatly affect how they are fulfilled. Our failure to respond properly may actually extend the sufferings of the church by delaying our ultimate victory. Even so, if we make proper use of biblical predictions, they will enhance our hopes for the future and incite us to live today in ways that will hasten the consummation of all things. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.